Welcome everybody, I'm so glad that you're here. Um, and um, finishing up this series that we started called Facing Challenges. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit now and ever to the ages of all ages, amen. So we started off, um, we started off by saying that um, if you're gonna kind of um, try to overcome anything in life, you're probably going to need a plan. You're probably going to need a roadmap. You're probably going to need a compass to help you navigate that roadmap. Or in the, in the you know, if, if the roadmap doesn't match your identical circumstances, at least it gives you something to look at. And then finally, um, you're going to need the strength to do it. And so we kind of said, this is our plan. Our plan um, is to find a roadmap in scripture and to find... Uh, to ask the Holy Spirit to guide us and be our sort of our compass and um, and um, to give us the strength to do it um, and I'm just kind of brushing over these things because we talked about them at length and you can review them online if you so wish right um, and so uh, the then we talked about kind of specific challenges at home and we specifically talked about conflict and we actually described something that works for almost any kind of interpersonal conflict, but especially the conflict that happens, um, the conflict that happens um, in um, at home. Sorry about that. There we go. Right. Um, and then, uh, and then last week we talked about work um, and specific uh, struggles at work, especially because work is so heterogeneous. We talked about being gracious and how being gracious at work changes everything and changes the environment that you work in to a place of grace. Today we're talking about facing challenges in the world at large. And um, it behooves us just to kind of know what we're talking about because the word world is so vague. Um, so when the Bible uses the word ver world, um, it's specific. Here's a kind of like a biblical definition, part in the writing being so small. It's specifically speaking about a very kind of specific sort of um, sort of definition. Um, um, sorry, I'll just, kind of, I'll just go. I'll just go back here. Um, and so that specific de definition is um, um, the, when it says the world, it's talking about the ungodly multitude of the whole mass of men alienated from God and therefore hostile to the cause of Christ. So it's talking about, about those who don't identify with Christ. It's talking about worldly affairs, the aggregate of every, all things world, uh, earthly. The whole circle of earthly goods, endowments, riches, advantages, pleasures which although hollow and frail and fleeting still stir desire and seduce from God and are obstacles to the cause of Christ. So the world world here is very much seen as something that's almost not to use this word, but almost in opposition to the cause of Jesus Christ. Um, um, although not necessarily, I mean, you could pretty much call it that. So what you know, we said that, we're, you know, our plan was going to be to go and look and see what does Jesus say? What does he say about the world? And what's his outlook towards the world? And maybe what his outlook towards the world is, is the outlook that, um, that he's calling us to have. Maybe sort of like 
you know, most behaviors are best learned by modeling. Maybe we can model our behaviors on his behaviors and learn uh, what to do uh, based on, on what, he, what he says. Well, his, you know, probably the most fantastic, you know, and well-known Bible verse that has anything to do with God and the world is probably this one, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God's attitude to the world and to all things outside of Christ and to the things that seduce us away from him is actually to love the world. That doesn't mean that, that Christ condones the world. It means that he loves the world without any reservation. And if you, if you look at the, the verse that comes right after, right after this, it says, John 3, 17, and he says, Jesus says, For I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world, that the world may be saved through me. Right? And so, so there's no aspect of condemnation here. There's no, there's, there's no, uh, there's no uh, judgment, although there is a judgment, and we're going to talk about that later. We're going to talk about Noah, how Noah was a judgment to the people around him and so on. We'll get there when we get there. But there's certainly no aspect of, of, of finger pointing, you know. The, God's attitude to the world is love, and not just love, but sacrificial love. Sacrificial, so sacrificial as to give up his only begotten son, with the purposes of what? That whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Now, a little bit more about the world. A little further on in, the, in Scripture, it says that we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And the word sway here um, is a word that comes from like, uh, like boating and navigation and all of that. Um, and um, it, it doesn't mean like tidal wave, like tsunami. It means that, that gentle wave. And um, for um, uh, anyone who's had some experience in spiritual life and has been able to discern a little bit between the working of God and the working of, of the wicked one in, in, in our lives, personally, you'll find that it's uncommon that the working of the wicked one in the life in the life of someone who's who's a believer comes as a fierce attack it happens but it's not common it's much more common that there be there's this insidious sway you know um, when I come and say, you know, I, sh I think I'll go pray right now. There's some little, there's some little thing that tries to sw gently sway me away from my place of prayer. It doesn't say, don't ever pray again. No, it says, ah, you know, you have to pray right now. And God is eternal, right? You know, he doesn't wear a watch. He's going to be here. He'll be here in five minutes. He'll be here in 10 minutes. Don't you need to go to the washroom, right? Every time I need to pray, suddenly I need to pee. I don't know what it is, the relationship. It's kind of like, you know, when you hear running water, you need to go. Well, for me, it's like every time I'm like, I should pray. Oh, maybe I should pee, right? Right? I don't know what it is, right? It's, it's the sway. It's something just gently swaying. You ever floated? You ever floated in the ocean or in a wave pool or something? You close your eyes and you're basking in the sun and you're just loving it and you wake up like a kilometer away i don't recognize anything 
around you, right? And, and that didn't happen by some massive tidal wave. That just, just a very gentle, insidious sway. That's what it means here by the sway of the wicked one. As opposed to God, right? When, when Jesus speaks about the Spirit, he says, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's saying when the Spirit blows, it's like wind. You feel it. You know it's there. It's not insidious. It's not like, uh, it's not trying to creep up on you. You know that it's there. You just simply don't know where it comes from and where it's going. And he says, not only is the Spirit like that, but so are those who are born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is completely different from this sway of the world. Uh, many times in Scripture, there's a lot of symbolism. And, and whenever you read the word sea or waves or something, that's always symbolically referring to the world going back to this verse of the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So, well, how does God deal with the world, right? Um, and we started talking about that in our introduction. And here's that verse that I was saying, John three seventeen: for God has sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And here we find something which is so characteristic of God and so strange in that there is no aspect of condemnation in him. God has no interest in condemnation. I'm pausing here to let you take, soak that up for a second because a lot of people, myself included, come from a background where if you know we have this concept like if you're good, God will reward you. But if you're bad, Oh my God, if, God, if you're good, God will reward you more than you ever imagined. And he will do things for you that are so beautiful, you could never imagine what they would be. But if you're bad, right, all of that goes 180 degrees, right? And the torture that's waiting for you, oh my God, you could never imagine. Why? Why? Where, 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 where do we get, where, where do you, where do you, how do you, how do you reconcile that with God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is, this is truth. This is truth of God as I know him. I'm just sharing with you God as I know him. All right, everybody's, you all welcome to believe what you believe and I respect your beliefs. But God, is a, God as I know him is this God of grace. He's this God who gives, not because we're good, not because... We deserve it, not even, he's not even paying it forward so that we would then pay it back. He's just good. He's good, so he does good things. He can't possibly imagine not being good. Because what would that say about him? How could he continue to be good if he doesn't do good? God has no interest in condemnation. He is truth, so he reveals all things. Like when you turn the lights on, it shows you the stuff that's clean and tidy and it shows you the stuff that's messy. But the stuff that's messy isn't messy because you turn the lights on. You can just see it more clearly now, right? So God's attitude towards the world is to give himself. It's to give himself to the world that the world might be saved. And we see that so clearly in what Jesus says in John 6, he's talking about 
he's talking about this bread of life. And this is actually, you know, very uh, congruent with sort of the practices of the church. Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give him is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He says, I am, the, I am this bread of life, and this bread of life is my flesh, and it's given for the life of the world. We say the same exact words in our, in our divine liturgy, which we just prayed upstairs, right? And this, this bread is offered, and it's, it's, it, you know, we, we pray with it, and then it's broken. And we say this is broken for the life of the world. And, and when we relive the event of the last time Jesus had a meal with his, with his disciples, with his friends... He says, he broke the bread and he said, take, eat, this is my body, given for the life of the world. Now, that might sound really kind of like symbolic and kind of really beautiful and so on. And you're kind of wondering, okay, well, what does this have anything to do with me? How does this have to do with me feeling, you know, living these challenges? You see, what, what we believe and this might sound like a little bit like it's hard to, to kind of accept it all in one go, but, but j just hear me out and then, and then, you know, you're welcome, of course, to believe whatever you like. We believe that the bread that we offer is mysteriously transformed into the real body of Christ into his real body and the wine and water that we offer is transformed into his real blood and on the altar it's broken and as he is immortal then his giving of his body his immortal body to all of us mortals heals our mortality and brings us back to immortality that when we die we can continue to live on forever. So it's the life in his body which is broken, like the breaking of his body is, is, his, is his death. And his death is what's necessary for him to be given. Like if we don't break, if, if, if we offer this big loaf, okay, and then we say, no, this is too sacred, this is too awesome, this is too... This is the body of Christ. And we, have, we believe it and we're, this is the body of Jesus. We can't possibly just break it into bits and pieces. So we said, we're just going to leave it like this. You know, we're just going to leave it like this and we're just going to adore it like this. Well, then it can't be given. For it to be given to each person, it has to be broken. You see, like there, there's a necessity for for us to receive for it for for him to be broken so what we believe is jesus is the son of god he's god come in the flesh incarnate takes flesh becomes flesh he the fleshly god jesus christ takes bread and says and breaks it and says take eat this is my body transforms his body into bread god whom no one has seen he is in the bosom of the father 
becomes flesh that we can be seen. Then he transforms again from being just flesh to being bread that he can be eaten. Why? That the bread might become flesh. Where does that happen? In you. In you. That the bread, the flesh became bread. The bread was eaten. The bread was eaten by you, was sustenance to you and me, and became flesh again. Why? So it can be broken again. What? Yeah. You see, we don't just participate in this to commemorate some event that happened 2,000 years ago. We participate in this so we can participate in the whole life of Christ and we can become the bread that is broken. We can become the flesh that is broken for the life of the world. Don't believe me? Let me share a very simple example for you. I think everybody's you know, free to their own opinion, right? But I think the most detested activity in Western culture is moving, right? I hate moving, and I don't know anybody who loves moving, right? So you hear a friend of yours uh, at work says, yeah, my landlord and this and that, and he wants to renovate the place, and he you know, served me notice and whatever. Then, yeah, I spend my evenings packing and this and that, and whatever. That person is telling you that they're, they're moving towards this most detested activity of life, which is called moving. Something stirs you in a, in a moment of madness where you say, hey, what day are you moving? I'll come help out. I'll get a bunch of guys. I'll get a bunch of friends and I'll come and I'll come help out. It says whatever this or that Saturday. It's usually a Saturday, right? Prime day to do something you want, of course. And you replace it with moving, right? And so you go and you show up at like 7 a.m. or something, right? And here you are carrying boxes, carrying furniture, you know, and by, by the time you get home at 8 or 9 o'clock at night, you know, you are beat. You wake up Sunday morning and you're like, I don't think I can move. I don't think I'm ever going to move again, right? You know, you're sore. You're sore as can be. You feel like you were at the gym for, 11, for 13 hours yesterday, right? Your body is literally, I took a literal example to make it clear, broken for the life of somebody else. That's what, that's what we're talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about. This Christianity stuff is really simple. It's as simple as looking at somebody else and saying, Jesus died for me because I needed him to. So I am going to die for you because you need me to. Without judgment, without stipulations, without, you know, but only if you will, and what, without reward, Jesus didn't ask us for nothing. He did what he wanted to do because he wanted to do it. And he's, he is calling us to go out and do what he did, which is to be broken for the life of the world. Nobody can talk about this better than Mother Teresa. I want to share this little clip with you. Hopefully all the, all the digital things will work for us. I personally am most unworthy. But I brought a girl child from this room. And I could see in the face of the child that the child was hungry. God knows how many ways they are not eaten. So I gave her a piece of bread. 
But everyone started eating the bread, crumb by crumb. And as eat, I said to the child, eat the bread. Eat the bread. And she looked at me and said, I'm afraid to eat the bread. Because I'm afraid that it is finished and will be hungry again. This is a reality. Maybe we are not hungry for a piece of bread, but maybe there is somebody there in the family who is unwanted, unloved, uncared, forgotten. There is love. Love begins at home. And love to be true as to hurt. And this is what I bring before you. To love one another with great love. So it's simple. I mean, you don't, you're not going to have to look very far to find somebody who's broken, to find somebody who's hurting, to find somebody who's hungry in some way for love. And what Mother Teresa is saying is that it only counts. It only, it only counts to them. It only counts to you, like for me personally, when it costs me something. You can't offer something to somebody that costs you nothing. I remember going out to a dinner with a friend of mine. This is a long time ago when I lived in Vancouver. And uh, he was new to Canada, so he'd, he'd order something, right? He had no idea what he's ordering, and he was too proud to ask. So he'd just order something, right? And uh, he wouldn't like it. He'd take two bites. He'd be like, this is gross. You want it? <laughs> right? We try to explain to him that, like... You can't give stuff that you don't want to other people and make it so obvious that you don't want it because then it's worth nothing to you. And if it's worth nothing to you, then if the gift is worth nothing to you, then it's not a gift. Then you're like disposing of something. You're not giving something, right? Um, I don't think he ever understood until much later what, what, what it was we were talking about, but it was always kind of funny. Jesus says something else about the world. He says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus' life dies, ascends, goes to heaven, sends us the Holy Spirit. So is there then no more light in the world? Absolutely not. He tells us, he says, to do good works that your light may shine and that people may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So as he was a light in the world and has ascended to heaven, he's left us behind to be also a light in the world. The truth, though, is that sometimes this light doesn't shine very brightly. So what's wrong? You know, I heard this analogy. I felt it was very fitting. It's almost like these, this lantern, you know, has these glass panes to kind of protect the light. And what happens over time is some the glass panes get kind of dirty they get covered with a little bit of soot you know the black stuff that comes the char that comes off of candle smoke and so on right and little by little the transparent glass isn't so transparent anymore and all of a sudden the light is shining just as brightly on the inside but there's something obscuring it so what does the lantern need it needs a good scrub it needs it needs to be brought into the workshop and 
just cleaned up a little bit. Sometimes I also need a moment of self-reflection, a moment of, of reviewing back over my life. What are the things that are concealing the light from shining, from shining through? And when that light shines, it's oftentimes obvious. Obvious in many good ways, in many not so good ways. In um, Hebrews 11, it talks about Noah. Noah is this guy who lived about two and a half thousand years or three thousand years before Jesus. And he lived at a time when everybody had gotten so wicked that scripture describes it in Genesis 6, 6 with like that every thought of man was evil all the time. They were so wicked, so wicked that every thought of every person was evil all the time. Three superlatives. And God tells Noah, I'm going to flood the world and I'm going to start, I'm going to start a brand new slate. I'm going to start a blank slate again with you. And so Noah starts building an ark. He builds this big boat, right? Noah spent 120 years building that boat. And I'm sure somebody asked him, what the heck are you doing, Noah? You're building a boat that's large enough to fit a town in the middle of a desert. Like, what are you thinking? Are you crazy? And Noah would tell him, hey, the rain is coming. And they would laugh. The rain is coming and they would laugh, right? By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. When it says he condemned the world, he didn't tell them, well, y'all, y'all go to hell. That's not what he said. In fact, he said very much the opposite. Come, help me build the ark. Come into the ark with me. For 120 years, he tried to convince them to join him in the ark. But no one listened. So, when the light shines, when you choose to do what's right at work, when you choose to be honest with a friend, when you, all of these things, it may or may not be well received, despite your best efforts, despite your best efforts not to be annoying or to make any look anybody look bad or whatever. But oftentimes, when there's something which is good, which is right, it forces a comparison. It forces a comparison that you might have never wanted to happen. And that's what makes people feel condemned. That's what makes people feel that they're, that they're, being, that they're being judged. Although it's not through any intention or act of judgment on one's part. God is really calling, he's really calling his disciples, he's really calling those who choose to follow him to be out of this world. To be something like has never been seen before. Jesus says, you are from, he's talking to, to people who are, who are arguing with him and refusing to believe the truth. He says, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. And he's calling us to follow him and to be not of this world. 
He says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. And that, that calls us to be a bit different. To be somehow not your run of the mill. One of the fathers says, if we follow Christ, we'll become outcasts and aliens in this world. Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of this world and the world loves its, if you are, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I remember reading that in um, grade eight Sunday school class when I still used to teach Sunday school a long time ago before I was a priest. And um, it was around, uh, it, was in, it was in 2001, just after the, the attack on the World Trade Center. And I remember one of my grade eight girls puts up her hand and says, but Father John, I, I don't know anybody, or John at the time, I don't know anybody who hates me. If Jesus says that if we follow him, if we follow him, we'll be hated. So why, why, am I, why am I not hated? Am I not a real follower of Jesus? Of course, I just patted her on the shoulder and told her there, there, and this, that, and whatever, and gave her some answer to kind of comfort her. But I went home thinking about her answer because it applied to me too. Jesus says, if you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, the world, I, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But does the world hate me? I'm not so sure. I shared this story recently at a, con at a conference. I was with some youth in Mississauga. And um, this, 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 this encounter really just brought tears to my eyes. There is a young man who is maybe a couple of years older than me. Yes, that would make me even younger than the young man. And um, he, uh, he had this like turning point where he just really turned to God and he really wanted to live the commandments of Jesus as best as he could word for word. So he asked me, he had been reading in scripture and he asked me um, how to do what was in the Bible, um, how to feed the poor and how to this and how to that. And I'd been doing it for years. And so he asked me for some advice. So I gave him some advice. Well, anyhow, he ran off. He, he's in Montreal. He's not here. He ran off and he started doing that. And just secretly, quietly, just himself, he didn't start like a whole initiative or start some nonprofit or whatever, just himself. He'd make some coffee, make some sandwiches, buy some hot food. He would source stuff from wherever he could and he would, and he'd be out there on the street in the bitter Montreal winter cold with these people on the street. Well, when uh, Queen Elizabeth put forward this Jubilee Award thing that, that, that she did, the homeless nominated him for it and he got it. He didn't tell anybody about it except his father of confession. And then uh, he happened to be in Toronto, so he, he told me about it. And he, he pulls it out of his pocket and he showed it to me, almost as if he was showing me some secret, almost as if he was showing me like something like he was embarrassed to say. So he pulls it out and he shows it to me. It's in like a case, you know, a little velvet case and so on with the silver coin. And he told me, 
Father John, I did what you, what you told me to do. It's almost like he was holding me accountable. He says, I did what you told me to do. And all I was trying to do was to follow Scripture, like to follow the teachings of Jesus. But the world is celebrating me. And he started crying. He told me, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? Because Jesus says that if we follow him and we do what he says, the world will hate us. Why is the world celebrating me? It was like a reprimand. It was like a, you know... It was like evidence of doing something wrong that he was celebrated. That's what Jesus tells us. I was uh, invited to speak at a, another church on the, just, uh, the, the feast of the Coptic New Year, which is the feast of all martyrs, right? Kind of like All Saints Day, um, in the Western world, it's sort of the Feast of All Martyrs. And so um, I was speaking about the beauty of martyrdom, and I was speaking about how martyrdom is a witness, and it's the ultimate witness, and all of this and that. And then I was saying, you know, people often say that the glor most glorious days of the church were the days of martyrdom. The most, and when, they, when people say that, I mean, if they actually know what they're talking about, they would know that, that there were so many martyrs in Egypt, in some areas, in this one town in, in southern Egypt called Upper Egypt, this town called Akhmim. In Akhmim, there, was, there were so many people slaughtered for their faith that the, the blood was up to the horse's knees, filled the streets up to the horse's knees and stained the street and stained the sides of the homes that are there on that main road that you can still go there to this day and see a demarcation 1500, 1700 years later. There was so much blood that when the horses charged out of that town, after having slaughtered literally the entire town, the blood was swooshing across the sides of the houses. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about martyrdom. We're talking about mass genocide. But those people say the most glorious days of the church. And they say, where have those days gone? Where have the days of the martyrs gone? And the faith of the martyrs and the strength of the martyrs, they would look death in the face and they would go joyfully to be beheaded. What happened to that? And I was saying this at this church, by the way, I never got invited back to this church, right? And I said, well, we're all saying the glory of the martyrs, the joy of the martyrs, all this stuff. But if God calls and says, hey, I would like your son, your daughter to be a martyr. What would you, what would you say? Say, no, Lord, take, take his son, take his daughter, right? That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the call. That's the call. That's, that's God's approach to the world and that's the approach he wishes for us, the attitude he wishes for us to have towards the world. In Jesus' final words to his disciples before he ascends to heaven, he says, preach the gospel to all of creation. I'm, I'm pretty nitpicky about recycling. Like, I, I'm not 
nitpicky about everything, but there's some things in life I am a little bit nitpicky about. Because I feel that it's my witness to the rest of the created world, that I'm trying to take care of the world, that I care for the world, that I'm willing to take some time out of my life, I'm willing to go out of my way, even if it, even if it hinders me, even if it bothers me, even if it hurts me, even if it costs me something, because if it doesn't cost me anything, it isn't worth anything. Share this with you guys last week. St. John Chrysostom says, Nothing is colder than a Christian who does not care about the salvation of others. Nothing is colder than to see a world perishing and to do nothing. I am certain that not a single one of you would be walking down a main road here in the city of Toronto, see a house on fire, and hear a baby crying in there and do nothing. I'm not a fight firefighter and I bet neither are you. I'm not suggesting that you would charge into the flames and kill yourself probably and the child. But I don't think you would look at the house and say, that's kind of sad and keep walking. You would do something. You would do something and it would make you late for your meeting and it might cost you money and it might cost you effort and time it might even hurt you but you would do something God saw this world a house on fire and said I love this world and I'm willing to die to make it better God's attitude toward the world is not to see it as a problem, but to see it as a miracle in the making. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.